0: Want you do think about a teacher from your childhood that has had a significant impact on you. But perhaps a teacher in elementary school, perhaps a teacher in middle school, or a teacher in high school. There's maybe different reasons and how they connected with you as you think about who that person is. Perhaps it was their personality, they were just very, very good person. They just engaged with you as a teacher. Perhaps it was their creativity and how they taught things that felt like they were boring that would otherwise became exciting and real. Uh, Perhaps it was just their patience with you. You knew that you were doing the wrong thing repeatedly, and yet they did not lose their patience with you. They kept coming back to you and gently, patiently correcting you and redirecting you, perhaps away from bad behavior or bad practice in the classroom. A teacher that sticks out of my mind is a man by the name of Cliff White. Cliff White was my algebra teacher in high school. Admittedly, when I took algebra for the first time, I did not like algebra. I didn't think algebra liked me. But then I met Cliff. Cliff took a subject that felt like a foreign language to me and made it accessible, made it understandable. And to my own surprise, or at least my own parents' surprise, I did well in algebra, not just once, but time and time again, all of which I attributed to Cliff White and his teaching me. But perhaps as you think about good teachers, you think about what was it that made them a good teacher? Teachers have different teaching methods, different ways in which they engage with their students, in which they get them to remember the material and to appreciate the environment and to engage with others around them, fellow classmates, to be a blessing and not a burden or a distraction. Some of these teaching methods that teachers can use is the use of questions. Oftentimes, the fallacy in teaching is that everything that should be taught should be done in the form of a statement. But oftentimes, the best teachers are known for not necessarily the statements they make, but the questions they ask. Because in the questions they ask, they get you to think. Not just to hear what they're thinking as teachers, but get you to think about what you're thinking. And why do you think that way? To connect some dots that maybe you have not previously connected, or maybe you have previously connected them, but you had forgotten about them. There's all different kinds of questions that teachers can use. Rhetorical, closed, open, hinge questions. The reality is sometimes these lessons are better taught by memorable questions. Teaching someone to be reminded of what they have learned in the past, maybe they have forgotten. A rhetorical one, if you will. Well, today in our text in Galatians chapter 3, we see a master teacher In Galatians chapter three, Paul transitions from recalling a conversation to now offering instruction. But he does does so through compounding questions. If you're new to Grace Church and you're new to Christianity, it's our practice to be in the Bible each and every Sunday. We don't think there's anything we could do to improve upon what God has given us. We wanna hear from God, not from men, and so it's the opportunity to do just that each and every Sunday, and we're working our way through The letter from Paul, the apostle, once a persecutor of the church, now a leader in the church, to a bunch of churches in the southern part of Galatia, kind of the area in Macedonia, if you will, that he is writing to. And we've been in Galatians chapters 1 and 2 for the last number of weeks, but now we come to Galatians chapter 3. And Paul's going to teach a crucial lesson rather, but he tends to do, through, do so through a number of questions. And so if you would, follow along as I read Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And let me ask you only this. We'll stop there for our purposes this morning. In Galatians chapter three, verses one to five. What you have here in Galatians chapter three is a transition. Paul has been defending the gospel autobiographically in Galatians chapter one and two, and now in Galatians chapter three, he starts to defend the gospel theologically. He moves from his story to the story as to be provide clarity, and he wants to do so so that Galatians understand it clearly and remember it. Thinking about sort of the main point of today's text, it comes in a variety of ways. In fact, if you can really think about what I've just read to you, the entire text is one long string of questions with the exception of the opening statement. These questions, all have one main point. Here's the main point of our text. The entire Christian life from beginning until the end is lived by faith in Christ. The entire Christian life, from beginning until the end, is lived by faith in Christ. Now, go back to verse 1, if you will, because in verse 1, you have examination by interrogation. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I imagine there's a lot of people in the room today who have not used the term nor heard the term bewitched in, well, a minute or two. It's not a common vernacular that we're using here in Miami. Oh, stop bewitching me. Oh, were you bewitched? You're like, what are we like, watching an old 50s comic sitcom here? What are we doing here? This statement he uses is a statement about like a magic spell. And he talks about the Galatians, he goes, it's as if they've come under the influence of magic, as if there's been some type of incantation said to them, done for them, that they have lost their thinking, they're not thinking clearly at all. Paul's not actually meaning that, he's not actually asking as if it's a legitimate question, he's really getting their attention to show just how foolish they are. He says this repeatedly, verse 1, oh foolish Galatians, again verse 3, oh foolish Galatians. Paul's not being playful, and he's also not being cruel. He is communicating soberly to them about the seriousness of the problem, and he points out and multiple times along the way where they have gone astray in their thinking. Paul believes that the answers to these questions are so obvious that anybody who has an ounce of perception can understand them and answer them. Just an ounce. And this term foolishness, oh foolish Galatians, and again, verse 3, are you so foolish? Let's take a minute if we can and just talk about what the Bible understands when it uses this term foolishness, because it's used in all kinds of different contexts. The Bible talks about foolishness in such a way that it's a result of a person misusing the intelligence God has given them. I'll say that again. Foolishness is someone who misuses the intelligence that God has given them. Making foolish decisions, coming to foolish conclusions. This is why in Psalm 14, verse 1, the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. <laughs> God often in the Scriptures with this sort of comedic effect as he communicates with no irreverence, but just sort of mocking the sinner. is like, really? You're gonna act like I'm not here. You're gonna act like everything around you is just here by chance. You're gonna act like just because you say it so makes it so that I don't exist. He goes, you're a fool to make such a claim. Proverbs chapter 19 verse three says that a man's foolishness will bring his way to ruin. It's an inevitable result. If you keep making foolish decisions, you'll have consequences. In fact, that's how Proverbs chapter 1 ends. Wisdom keeps calling. Wisdom keeps calling. Wisdom keeps inviting. And repeatedly, a person will not listen to wisdom. And then guess what happens? Grave consequences. And wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1 says, don't blame me. I told you, you wouldn't listen. But yet in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it's not just other people are called foolish. Sometimes Christians are called foolish. At least that's how we're viewed by believing in the cross. Chapter 1, verse 18, even talking about the world and how they view Christians, it says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There might be some of you who see think that right today. You're here politely as a family member, a friend. You came just to be kind, like some inviting you for a dinner invitation. I'm glad for you to be here, but you might honestly, just very kindly, but nevertheless think your friend who's a Christian who brought you here is a fool for believing in a crucifixion 2,000 years ago and a resurrection three days after that is the key to unlock all of human history. Like that just sounds ridiculous to me. You wouldn't be the only one to think that way. The Bible is quite aware that a lot of people think that way about Christians. So foolishness is not a new topic to the Scripture. When it comes to our eternal destiny, one is either a fool, meaning he rejects the gospel of Christ, or one is wise, meaning he believes in Christ and commits his life to him. The Christian discovers that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, what he once thought was foolishness, is actually the wisdom of God providing him eternal salvation, which is interesting since Paul himself used to think Christians were foolish. Now, he understands the Bible clearly. He begins to recognize anybody who does not think that the Bible is true is themselves foolish. This takes us back to our text in Galatians chapter 3. Paul is demonstrating the seriousness of the problem here. This should not be read through today's sensibilities. When you read this and maybe into your sensibilities today where he says, "Oh foolish Galatians." verse three, "Oh, are you so foolish? You're like that just sounds like a mean guy. You need to just be very careful to not read sort of modern Western therapeutic sensibilities of, of tenderness, of, of this idea of like, oh, you're going to hurt someone's feelings, Paul. Paul's not worried about someone's feelings being hurt. He's worried about someone's lives being lost for an eternity. And he wants to be very clear and very pointed when he addresses this problem before them. And that's why he says in verse 1, look at what he says in verse 1. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This might be an interesting phrase for you to kind of hear, this idea of being Before your eyes, Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Here's what he's talking about. He is saying in his preaching that the Galatians already heard, they've already understood the reality of Christ being crucified. In fact, he basically describes preaching as essentially an exercise where the mind can see and the heart believes, and therefore the life will follow. In Christianity, it can be said as follows, Hearing is seeing. Hearing is believing. You just think about the value of that in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so he is sort of setting up his questions here. And that really gets us now to sort of the bulk of this morning's text, Because really what he's doing here is posing questions. There's a total of six of them, but some of those are just sort of rhetorically being asked in sort of an auxiliary manner. There's four of them that we need to focus on, and each of these are intended to jolt the Galatians back to reality. And maybe, just maybe this morning, they're going to have that effect on you as well. Question number one, it's about justification. How did you begin the Christian life? justification. How did you begin the Christian life? Now, I feel comfortable to use that term because it was just last week in which that term was sort of being unpacked and identified. What was only me to be justified, to be declared righteous, for God to redeem, for God to pardon, for God to accept. Well, this question is, how does the Christian life begin? We'll look back to verse 2. Here's the question he asks in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith. This kind of uh, book ending, if you will, this sort of either or option is repeated later on in verse 5. This, this works of the law or by hearing with faith. It continually kind of threads its way through the book of Galatians. And what's happening here is that Paul recognizes what the Galatians recognized, which is when they became Christians, the Spirit of God came upon them and then dwelt them that they are not themselves, that they are a new creature in Christ as the Scripture describes. And let me just take a minute here to explain this because I think this is helpful not only for Christians to understand, especially if you come from some background that is taught otherwise, or even for those of you who are non-Christians that you might understand this as well. At conversion, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is poured into one's heart Those who belong to Christ and have genuinely been converted have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. This is the the possession. They possess the Holy Spirit. And to see this, if you would, just go to Romans, keeping your finger in Galatians chapter 3, turn to the left in your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you turn to the left gone through the pages of 2nd Corinthians and 1st Corinthians you get into the book of Romans Romans chapter 8 verse 9 same author different audience says you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him Paul is saying it's part and parcel. Those two go together. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, then you are a Christian. Those two go together. If you do not have the Spirit, then you're not a Christian. Turning now to the right in our Bibles, going back to Galatians, a couple pages just to the right, the next book, Ephesians. Again, same author, different audience. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul talking about what the triune Godhead has done in saving sinners, God the Father, God the Son. Then he gets in verse 13 and 14, the God the Spirit. Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, or believing in Christ, were sealed with what? With the promised Holy Spirit, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What he's talking about here is the reality that the Christian life was begun through faith in the Lord, and part of that was the reality that the Spirit of God was given to you. The Spirit not only awakened you to the reality of your dead condition and the hope found in Christ, but then as a pledge of your inheritance in Christ, according to Ephesians 1, you were given the Holy Spirit as a pledge of the promised future reality of what he would do. What Paul is doing here back in Galatians chapter three is he's reminding the Galatians, listen, this is how you began the Christian life. You began the Christian life recognizing the reality that it is through faith. Again, you see that in Galatians chapter three, verse two. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The significance of the idea of works of the law is the idea to say it's not enough for us to have believed in God, we have to continue with our works. Or, even worse than that, actually, what's not enough is that Jesus dying on the cross, there must be something more I do to gain God's favor. I want you to imagine with me, you have planned a dinner with eight of your closest friends. You are very excited for this dinner. You have planned it, what the menu's gonna be. You've picked the date, they've all confirmed that they're gonna come to that dinner. You've then gone shopping to get the, all the items you need. You've then gone home and that afternoon you began to bake and cook in preparation for that. You've decorated the table, you've got the candles lit. You are excited. And then as the time is drawing near and nearer to your friends supposedly coming, as they have all RSVP'd they were going to come, you get a couple text messages from some of them saying, actually, something's come up. We're not going to make it tonight. To say you're disappointed would be an understatement. And then you've got some other friends who are coming, but they say they're running a few minutes late. They arrive 30 minutes later. And they come in, they're like, wow, this is amazing what you've done. Look at this you've put out. And you're like, man, I'm so excited. I think you're going to love what I've just prepared for you. And they're like, oh, that's so kind of you. I was so hungry on my way here. I went to the drive-thru. I've got some food. I'm actually kind of full now. But I love what you've done. It looks amazing. And they've prepared all this for you. you've rather prepared all for them. And now half of them don't want it, and the other half aren't even showing up for it. How would you feel? You'd probably be irritated, insulted. You'd probably like remind me to never invite these eight people again. You'd have leftovers for days. You wouldn't know whether to just eat it and be reminded of your friends that you need to get new ones of in the weeks that follow or if you should just find new friends that wanna be your friends and eat leftovers with you. But you would feel incredibly insulted. I want you to imagine what is actually true. Not a meal that's been prepared, but a son of God that's been sent. A life that's been lived. Rejection that's been received. Crucifixion that has occurred. Rejection from the Father that's taken place. All this being laid out. And after all of that work, some people don't even want it, and other people said they want it, but now they're so filled up by other things, they don't care about it anymore. The Galatians are tempted to mock what God has done in providing the sacrifice of his son. And believe that by works of the law, they can have peace with God. As if to say, Jesus, you didn't need to go to all this work for us. We can add to this ourselves." Paul like, that's not how this Christian life with you began. That's not what it looks like. Which takes us to the second question. Not just one of justification. How did you begin the Christian life? But also sanctification. How do you live the Christian life? This is the question he asks in verse 3 look at what it says there. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The idea of sanctification by definition is how a Christian becomes like Christ, their Savior. It's as being made into his likeness. What does that look like? This is not a question of how the Christian life began. This is a question of how the Christian life continues. Do we start the Christian life one way, but then finish it another way? I mean, in verse chapter, in verse 3, it says, being perfected by the flesh. Paul is talking about relying on the old man. The Judaizers wanted others to begin their life with God through not only faith in Christ, but also circumcision, i.e. obeying the law. And Paul is like, wait, wait a minute, Galatians, you maybe didn't believe that, but now after the fact, after you've become Christians, after you put your faith in Christ, now you're trying to find your identity in obeying the law. Practically speaking, the Galatians are tempted to say, hey, we might be late to the dance, but we can still get circumcised, we can still obey the law, and then God will, how he'll accept us continually. Maybe not how we began with him, but it's how we're going to continue with him. Justification is not through the Spirit by faith, and sanctification is through effort by works. Both, instead, are taught through the Spirit's work and a result of faith. Friends, in verse 3 of what's being said here, the significance of what's being stated is this reality. Many Christians, dare I say, perhaps many sitting here this morning, think. The way you begin your Christian life is by faith and the way you continue your Christian life is by works. A common but incredibly tragic way of thinking about your Christian life. You might be saying, well, Eric, are you saying Christians should not do good works? That's not what I'm saying, that they should not do good works. What I'm saying is what is undergirding, what is driving, what is motivating, why do Christians do what they do? Some of you perhaps come from traditions that you've been taught you can lose your salvation. And so the motivation behind you continually working, working, working is sort of this hand-wringing exercise. Maybe you've lost it. You found it, and you lost it again, you found it, and you lost it again. What does this idea mean? When someone becomes a Christian, they are justified, declared a new creation, redeemed promised eternal life, marked by God, sealed by the Spirit, and guaranteed glorification. What God gives will not be taken away by God. A Christian cannot lose their salvation. If they could, I guarantee you this, they would. You would, I would, but the reason that we cannot is because salvation is a gift of God, and these gifts, according to Romans chapter 11, verse 29, are irrecoverable. The idea that he cannot take them back. A Christian cannot be unnewly created. The redeemed cannot be unpurchased. Eternal life cannot be temporary. It is, after all, called eternal life. God cannot go back on his word. Scripture says that God cannot lie. Say this, friends, because some of you might be thinking, but what about Christians who live in unrepentant sin continuously? What about Christians who reject the faith and deny Christ later on in life? Well, let me just say very candidly, and I hope helpfully, but very soberly, not everybody who professes to be a Christian actually is a Christian. It's not because they lost it, it's because they never actually had it. Why do I say that? Because the Bible declares that a true Christian will not live in a state of continual, unrepentant sin in perpetuity. The Bible also says that anyone who departs the faith is demonstrating that he was never truly in the faith. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He may be seen, she may be seen as religious. They may have done a lot of good works in the church. But they may be actually were never born again by the power of God. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, verse 16, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Friends, go back to the text in verse three. Look at what he says again. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Friends, if you think you will earn and continue to secure God's favor by your goodness. Now that you're a Christian, that's a complete lie. And if you look to what you have done and you pledge to do as your assurance, that's also a complete lie. It is only through faith in Christ. I'm reminded how often, even just in the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, listen to what it says as we think about how often we are inclined to slide towards ungodliness slide towards these ways of rejecting the lord it says in the song prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love here's my heart o oh, take and seal it seal it for thy courts above friends the christian life begins with faith and it continues with faith in our community groups, most of us are going through study, uh, the study, the pursuit of holiness by Jerry Bridges. Others who are in my community group are going through the gospel-centered community. But those of you who are in the study, the pursuit of holiness by Jerry Bridges, you're familiar with the writing of Bridges. Just a sweet, well, he's since passed and be with the Lord, but it was a sweet, godly man. One of his other writings titled Disciplines of Grace. He says the following, I think it's helpful for all Christians to hear. God does not examine our performance to see if we are worthy. Rather, he looks to see if we are trusting in the merit of his son as our only hope for securing his blessing. To repeat, we are saved by grace and we are to live by grace every day of our Christian lives. If it is true that our relationship with God is based on His grace instead of our performance, why then are we so prone to fall into the good day, bad day type of thinking? It is because we have relegated the gospel to the unbeliever. Friends, Christians and non Christians both need the gospel, sinners need the gospel. I ask you, for those of you who are Christians, would you look to Christ for your confidence, not your works? Would upon looking to Christ, would you find fresh motivation to live for Christ? Consider with me just one practical area amongst many others, sexual pleasures. Sexual pleasures can be profoundly intense in the lives of many people, both men and women. And the desire to find pleasure in sexual outlets But God has designed sex to be enjoyed only in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. We are not first and foremost called to try hard to say no to these temptations. We should say no, but that's not first where we begin we don't first begin with the covenantized software we put on our computers. We don't first begin with our accountability partners that we can have asked us questions throughout the week. We don't first begin with another book to read. We first begin by trusting that God knows better than we do of what is good and right for us. That it will bring peace, that'll bring human flourishing. Not simply our own desires and our best efforts. Our obedience and sexual self-control should flow from our faith in God and what his word says. Not be replaced by. It takes us to our third question. It's one of persecution Paul wants to ask him about. Not just justification, how'd you begin the Christian life, or sanctification, how do you live the Christian life, but now the question is one of Persecution. Why did you suffer in the Christian life? Look at verse 4 now again. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain? Now, you don't need to turn there per se, but later on in Galatians chapter 4 verse 29, he makes a passing reference to this idea. Galatians have gone through difficulties themselves. They have experienced hardships themselves. And Paul, in light of that, is sort of bringing this up in here in verse 4 to say, was that really even necessary? If you're really going to experience verbal abuse and mistreatment, was it even necessary to take place? I mean, Paul is saying, if you can make all this difficulty go away by being circumcised, by pleasing people, by doing something that they want you to, do, to be accepted, then why are you suffering? He's basically saying, listen, if you give in to the Judaizers, if you deny the gospel, if you live by works, not by faith, then, then you are never really saved. And if you're never really going to be saved, then why would you go through the rejection you're going to go through if you're going to claim to be a Christian? He's like, you've got to make a decision here. You've got to be clear on what it is you're going to be motivated by. You think about the topic of persecution. Persecution has had a purifying effect on the church. It did back then the New Testament. It still does today around the world. The purifying effect it has in the church, it's not something that the church enjoys, but good can come from it. How? Number one, persecution matures the Christian. Persecution matures the Christian because it asks the Christian to ask, oh, I really believe, and what am I willing to, willing to pay for that belief? Some of you know what this is like. You've had friends that have, I don't know, rejected you. You've had coworkers who have completely dismissed you. You perhaps have had chances at work to which you've been passed over because you're sort of not a team player going along with sort of the cultural ethics of what you need to do and how you need to slight your records and update your Excel documents and kind of, you know, make the documents look better for the company in the next quarterly report. You're just saying, I just cannot do that in good conscience. And this has a chance to mature you because it gives you a chance to ask the question, what do you really love? What do you really after? The second way in which uh, the church is helped by persecution is it actually helps purify the church by sifting out of the church those who are not Christians. Mark my words, the greater the consequence for being a Christian, the less likely other people who are not Christians are going to self-identify as a Christian. I mean, to be a Christian in the United States of America in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s was expected. You couldn't run for office without kind of making some type of identification with Christianity. Now it's a liability. Now, if anything, you want to be a Christian only to appeal to a political group of people, not actually be one of any actual conviction of what Christianity would teach. Persecution has this effect. It sifts out the non-Christians. God brings heat upon a person's life to make clear to themselves where they really are at. What do they really believe? Are they really in? Or is this price too much for them to pay? That's exactly what Paul's asking in verse four. Why? Why does it matter? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? You didn't need to do that. If you're gonna go along to get along, then, then why suffer? There's no need to. Just go with the crowd. It takes us to the fourth and final question. What a revelation. How was the Christian life confirmed to you? Look at the question in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The Galatians could not deny what was commonly seen, particularly in the time of the New Testament, sort of these acts of the apostles, these miraculous works. It was undeniable what was taking place. You see these things often chronicled in the book of Acts as to how different miracles were being done in a way that was undeniable that the teaching being given was validated by the affirmation that followed. And he's essentially acknowledging that they realize that, that they understand that, these works of miracles among you. He's like, hey, did God supply the Spirit and God do these works? It was this revelation provided to you. How was that an affirmation to you? God was working in their midst and establishing his church amongst them, and it was undeniable. could be easily argued that Paul's leading his previous questions comes really down to this final question in verse five. Is it works of the law, what you do, or is it through hearing through faith, only through faith in Christ? One of the tragedies that's taken place over the years in the art world is that protesters wanting to make statements Will enter into museums of famous artwork and seek to destroy the pieces, either by slashing them with knives or by painting them. There was such an example of that in 1974, Tony Schiavazi spray-painted with red spray paint, Kill Lies All, which... Makes you wonder, did did he get ahead of himself and made me redo that sentence? And he did it, though, over a famous Pablo Picasso painting as a protest, as an attempt to take something of immense value and say, it's of no value now because of what I've decided to do to it. Christians, listen to me. We are tempted perhaps without even realizing it, just like the Galatians were, to take the masterpiece of what God has done in providing his son for salvation and to graffiti all over the cross with our good works, our works of the law, to take something of immense value and make it now of no value. Paul calls the Galatians foolish for thinking that way. And so are we if we think that way as well. And if you don't even think Christ is the Savior, and you've never even given your life to him, then friend, listen to me. You would be foolish to be given an opportunity to be forgiven of your sins by God and not have surrendered your life to Christ and ask him to forgive you, of which he has promised to do so, not because your words are convincing enough, not because your faith is great enough, Not because you've pledged from that point on to never do anything wrong again, but simply by faith alone and Christ alone, because of his grace alone, will he forgive the sinner. And when he forgives the sinner, there's nothing the sinner can do to pay him back, to add to his works. Nothing is needed. Nothing more can be added, for it is enough. For those of you who are not Christians, I call on you to believe in Christ asking for his forgiveness and trusting him with the future of your life for pardon and acceptance and love and eternal life to be adopted and renewed. And for those of you who are Christians like myself, friends, may we be reminded to stop trying to graffiti over the cross with our good works. It is only through faith in Christ is God accepting us. Not just the beginning of our Christian life, but the continuation of our Christian life.